Uh, I have to confess, I'm a little disoriented. Uh, oftentimes after holidays, I guess a lot of us are, but we went on a cruise, so I still feel like I'm doing this. So if I do that a little bit, you can just kind of wave me back in. But even, even more disoriented was this morning when I woke up uh, and I got on Facebook, like I frequently do, and I saw a couple of statuses from my friends and it said, Happy New Year. I thought, I've been gone, but I haven't been gone that long. <laughs> Happy New Year. You know, I just got back from a cruise, and so I was thinking, well, maybe it is New Year. I don't know. Um, but I realized a couple of friends that had posted that uh, were coming my, some of my seminary friends, and what they were really saying was, it's the first day of the church calendar. You know, it's the first day of Advent, Advent 1, uh, or here we are, Advent 1. And so they were really just saying, you know, for liturgical types, you know, you're going to have your Advent service. Uh, Happy New Year. But only dorky seminarians would feel the need to say that. Um, Lord, forgive us, we know not what we do. Uh, but it is jarring in a certain way, isn't it, to think that we, uh, we're now in a new year, as it were. For most of us, it feels as though the year is wrapping up still, doesn't it? Uh, we're still kind of frantically rushing towards the end. And some of us, that's a great comfort. For some of us, it's a great stressor. I still think about all the Christmas shopping that I haven't even started. There's a lot left to be done. This is precisely what I'm talking about. Um, I don't know many people who truly live and act according to the church calendar. It's not really part of our everyday. I'm, I'm really shaped by the school calendar. If you have kids, you probably are too. August through May is kind of your, your calendar, uh, and summer's off. Um, this time of year, though, tends to get absorbed into a typical kind of holiday sentimentality in our culture. And you know that. I mean, we, we see it everywhere. The radio stations are all over it. I think if I hear one more Bing Crosby tune, I'm going to go crazy. I can't handle it. Uh, I mean, it started before Halloween this year. They, they really jumped on it. And Starbucks, you know, when you see the eggnog latte, you know it's time. It's, it's, it's time for Advent, uh, time for Christmas. Lights and decorations popping up on every corner. And we know, we know the drill. We know what time it is. And this is not to step on toes uh, and say that's a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. We can, we can celebrate and enjoy um, those fun things, these, these kind of secular things, as it were. Um, and there is a sort of secular holiday sentimentality that goes apart, but there's also a churchly kind of sentimentality that pops up during Advent. Um, we get kind of this weird churchly obsession with sweet baby Jesus. I think about that movie, Talladega Nights, if you've seen this. And you remember the prayer, uh, if you've seen it, Ricky Bobby insists on praying to baby Jesus. You know, sweet baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce baby. And I cringe every time I hear it. It's just, just awful. But he insists upon it. Um, and they say, well, you know Jesus grew up. You know he was a man, he had a beard. He goes, well, I, I pray to the Jesus I want to pray to. You pray to whoever you want to. Uh, and that's pretty typical. And I think the church kind of gets wrapped up a little bit. We get obsessed with the, sound of the, the kind of cutesy side of it. Um, sweet baby Jesus, he didn't come for a, a holiday, though. It's not, he wasn't come just to visit for the holiday. I mean, did you read the Mark passage? Did you hear that? That was, that was terrifying. Um, the Advent readings, are, are they're not so sentimental uh, as we want them to be. And this brings us to our text from the prophet Isaiah, um, which you have in your, in your service booklet here. Uh, we find that the people of Israel have really found themselves in a horribly dire situation where judgment and destruction are prevailing. And this is kind of Israel's theme, really. Uh, they're always running from, from, from judgment or destruction. Uh, the centuries prior to Jesus' coming were difficult. I mean, that's an understatement above all understatements. Uh, from the onslaught of the Assyrians and the Babylonians to the rule of the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans in Jesus' time, uh, they really couldn't get away from it. They couldn't catch a break. And in Isaiah's day, the people were on their way to losing their homeland and eventually their temple. Um, life gets particularly stressful when, we, when even home um, is in a rut. It's no longer restful. 
And this is precisely why Isaiah is crying out for God to do something about it. Not simply a divine word, not a divinely appointed leader. Isaiah is crying out for God himself to enter our reality. I love the King James reading. I didn't select this, but it's, it's, very, um, it's, it's beautiful. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at thy presence. Isaiah is asking for God to rip open the skies. Even the mountains will quake at the very presence of God. That's such a powerful thought. And yet this is what we've come to expect when God enters the world. I mean, think about Moses with the burning bush. Uh, this Advent sentimentality doesn't really do. You think about God entering our reality. Mountains shake, skies rip apart. And what else could have happened except for the skies tearing apart and the mountains shaking? How, how could the world possibly contain God's presence? We would expect that things would rip and break and shatter and burst and melt when God enters our reality. If you recall from Isaiah chapter 6, even the angels had to cover themselves in order to protect themselves from the terror of God's overwhelming presence. Isaiah cries out, Woe is me uh, in God's presence. So amidst all of the destruction and calamity brought forth by the opposing nations, Isaiah is calling for this terrible presence of God. This terrible, I mean, he uses that word terrible, terror. God's presence brings terror. He's asking for that in, in the midst of this, to judge their enemies. He wants that God to come. He doesn't want sweet baby Jesus. He wants the, the fire God. Um, and, you know, as Isaiah prays that, um, he wants his people to be saved. Isaiah is praying for a theophany. That's kind of a fancy word for God himself to come. He doesn't want uh, God's servant or an angel. He wants God to come and deliver. And we often find ourselves in a similar predicament, don't we? Like the ancient Israelites, we are constantly on the verge of a crisis. That sounds a little dramatic. But each one of us here is either about to experience a crisis, going through one right now, or just got out of one. Um, that's just the way life goes. That's what it means to be a human. We're always on the verge of crisis. This is a um, pain, you know, pain and suffering, they're inescapable. It's part of our life. Perhaps some of us... Uh, go through seasons where we feel like we're on top, everything's going our way, but that is just the exception that, that proves the rule, really. Crisis is unavoidable. And this is true for all of us, no matter our age, our gender, our status, or any other qualification we can think of. Crisis does not discriminate. It's an equal opportunity employer. And I don't have to convince you of this, I don't think. I think you know this. But uh, We all have that next big thing before us that we know we just can't face. I don't know what it is for you, um, it's like Waylon Jennings tells us, you know, the country artist, if it ain't one thing, it's another thing on the way. Like Auburn last night, it was just one thing after another. That's, that's two rules I broke in a sentence. You know, I, I talked about country music and I talked about Auburn and Alabama. I'm an Auburn fan, though. I feel, I feel like justified in doing that. Uh, if, if it ain't one thing, it's another one on the way. Ancient Israel or Judah had the coming of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and again, it, wasn't, it was long before Persia or Greek or the Romans, or somebody's, somebody's coming. And we're the same way. For most of us, it's, only, it's not only a sequence of events, though, that are, that are coming. A lot of times it comes all at once. It all comes out all at once. All the difficulties just spring forth. And this is true, I, I know, just in my, my career. I think about the papers and exams and, and everything that comes at once. Today was the Advent Bowl, and I kept getting sacked in this last game. It was miserable. Uh, but sort of real life, real life crises, I mean, those, those aren't really real life. I mean, I, I hate to complain about having papers and exams. But real life stuff, I mean, you know the kind of things that, that hit us all. Cancer, aging parents or great grandparents, uh, death, 
unruly, rebellious children. I don't have children, but I see it around all the time. Addiction. I mean, it's all around us. Crises happen. And they're not slowing down anytime soon. And what's our natural recourse when crisis strikes? It's prayer. Well, for most of us at least, just as Isaiah is showing, I mean, they're in trouble. Who does he turn to? He turns to God. Um, he, he demonstrates that. Prayer, um, it doesn't naturally flow from things like, I'm on top, I don't want to pray to God. I want to give God thanks. I mean, those are all holy and good things to do, but that's not my first recourse. Um, it's usually when we're in crisis. We tend to overlook God when things are going well, and we instinctively pray when, when crisis hits. Prayer is the most natural human posture when we're exposed to crisis. Even so-called secular people or agnostics pray when the going gets rough. I think of that show, The Walking Dead. I'm not much into zombies or that sort of thing, but that show, for whatever reasons, gripped me. Uh, and it's a perfect example, really, because I mean, it's, it's a hopeless situation. It keeps getting worse. Every episode, I'm thinking, it's going to end. The season's gonna, this, this is going to wrap it up. They're all going to die. Um, and they go around, and they find this abandoned church. It's the first time in the show there's really kind of a, a religious aspect to it. And even the people in the show that are self-proclaimed non-religious, uh, they feel the need to pray. The protagonist, Rick, I mean, he says explicitly throughout the show, I'm not really into the God thing. But when that chapel comes up in that church, that abandoned church, he feels the need to pray. Um, so just as we're describing here, uh, everything in the show it goes wrong. So we, our natural recourse is to turn to God. Hope is lost. We, we pray to God. But Isaiah also demonstrates how this natural last resort move that we do in prayer it brings up another problem. We've, we've got all our crises before us, but when we pray, another problem emerges. In asking for God's help, for God to intervene, Isaiah then realizes something. He realizes that he's not worthy to even ask for God's help. Um, he's praying, and he, he starts talking. He goes from asking for God to come in and move the mountains, rip open the skies, and immediately moves to a confession of sin. So in coming to God for help, we, we, we're aware of our own sin, our own problems. Israel is not worthy to ask for God's help. Isaiah wasn't worthy to ask for God's help. We're not worthy to ask for God's help. Our own sin is the reality that we face when we go to the Holy God for help. When we go to God for help, we quickly realize how sinful we really are. Again, back in Isaiah 6, woe is me. Woe is me before this Holy God. Crisis comes upon us from the outside, but we quickly realize the crisis that boils under our skin inside. We do nothing but further contribute to the problem. And so for Isaiah, requesting God's help immediately turns into a confession of sin. Just to speak for myself for a moment, I've, I've thought about this this semester, just a couple of experiences. Um, well, I'll say this first. Um, we don't always know when a crisis is coming, but it's coming. Just like I was saying, it's, it's coming. Whether you know it or not, it's, it's coming. And uh, we, we tend to bifurcate reality. We, we put it into two sectors. We've got the manageable section and the unmanageable section. We, we, we think we have a long list of manageable and just kind of a short list of unmanageable. The more we come to terms with reality, realize the unmanageable is a never-ending never list and the manageable is basically nothing. But going back to my experience, I found myself a couple times this, this semester waking up from either a nightmare or some kind of bad thought and, and finding myself just begging God for mercy. I don't know what I was dreaming or experiencing, but I find myself praying, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. So asking for God's help, I immediately realize how, how sinful I am. And it's kind of a subconscious happening. I mean, it's not something I'm really aware of. And I've, I've caught myself doing it two or three times, and there's something there. Um, I find myself needing God's help in the nightmare or the thought or whatever. But in order to ask for that, I also feel like I need to be forgiven for something. I don't know what happened in the dream, but I feel this great need to, 
ask for God's mercy. And it makes me think of that, that prayer, the Jesus prayer. You, you might have heard it. It's really easy, and it's, it's, it's the best prayer, I think, for, for me. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It tells me who God is. It tells me who I am. And uh, it usually comforts me. So our, my whole life's unmanageable. This list of unmanageable stuff is, is everywhere. And even if you don't know it, it's, that's the way it is. Our life is unmanageable. We're all dealing with major problems in our life right now. I mean, you know that. I don't have to tell you that. But the biggest one is our own guilt, this, this problem that comes up that we realize how sinful we are, whether we know it or not. And this fact is what makes the whole nature of faith and the religious life so counterintuitive. The season of Advent is not simply a looking forward to Jesus coming to rescue us from external crises and calamities. And it's certainly not the sentimental uh, Advent that I was talking about. Advent is more profoundly a looking forward to Jesus coming and saving us from ourselves. We cannot dare to face God on our own. We need someone to stand in for us. Advent and the coming of our incarnate Lord is remarkable and that the one who's coming is the one who also stands in for us. The judge becomes the judged. He does not just extinguish our crises, he takes them on. So Advent season really calls us to face reality, to call a spade a spade. We deserve judgment, but we receive grace. The one coming to rip open the skies and shake the mountains is the one who comes to forgive us. Isaiah begs for God the potter at the end. He describes God as a potter holding clay. He begs God the potter to have mercy on his people, to be gentle with the clay that is in his hands. And we can be rest assured that this potter's hands will be gentle with us because they are the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. Amen.